Do you ever wonder how we teachers come up with the teachings that we do? Yes. Well, <laughs> you think you've wondered before. Wait till you leave today. <laughs> Let me just tell you one thing about it, and that is that for me, and I think for all of us, when we start working on a teaching, we're never sure exactly where it's going to go. And with the teaching today, I don't really like where it ended up very much. Sort of two main points, and I don't like either of them. Too bad. Too bad. One of the things that uh, kind of entertains me and interests me is the idea of forced perspective. Are you familiar with that? Where when you put things close, they seem bigger, far away, they seem smaller, and you can do funny things with pictures. we got some examples of that here. See? Yeah, let's look at the next one. Now, see that that girl is not as tall as the Eiffel Tower. I'm just, I'm just uh, let's do another one here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this next one is interesting because sometimes you really have to stop and think about what it is that's there. You get that? Yeah, it's just a faucet, but because it ends right at the horizon there, it looks like it's going over the hill. They do that a lot in movies. I remember in the Lord of the Rings series, you know, where you have these little hobbits people who are, you know, like three feet tall. And and, uh, I remember watching a video about it where Gandalf, the wizard, is riding in a cart with Frodo, the hobbit, and it looks like Gandalf is a regular-sized person, and it looks like Frodo is like three feet tall, side-by-side in the cart. But when you view it from the side, you see that Gandalf is in front, and Frodo is like six feet behind him. They had made this cart so it looked like they were right next to each other. And because he was so far behind, it looked like he was really small. Forced perspective. I would like to suggest that our culture often forces on us a forced perspective, an unrealistic perspective of what life really is and what it's all about. As Carla mentioned, we are in the third week of a teaching series based on the book of Daniel. Daniel seemed to be able, in the midst of a, of a broken pagan culture, to have the right perspective on life. And so we're looking at some of the characteristics of Daniel that allowed him to thrive in the midst of that broken society, to ask ourselves if we also can thrive in the midst of our broken society. And we're looking at things like his faith and his courage. And today we're looking at Daniel's wisdom. Daniel's wisdom. What is wisdom? We use the word a lot. What do we mean by that? I would suggest that a good definition for wisdom would be seeing life from God's perspective. That wisdom is seeing life the way God sees it. So how do we get that kind of wisdom? Where does it begin? It seemed like for Daniel, Daniel's life was um, out of control. Let me give you a little running background in that that you may not have gotten the last couple of weeks. Let's go back a thousand years before the time of Jesus. A thousand B.C., David is king of the Jews in Jerusalem, and his son Solomon dies, and there's a civil war, and ten of the twelve tribes that make up the nation of Israel become a northern kingdom of Israel. And through the influence of some very wicked, ungodly kings and leaders, these ten tribes, the nation of Israel, fall farther and farther away from God. And even though God warns them and cautions them and woos them, they move farther and farther away from God. And so eventually God 
has them overrun by the world power at that time, the Assyrians. They are carried away. The nation is destroyed. They exist no more. Two of the tribes have formed a nation in the south, the nation of Judah. And they do a little better. They have a few righteous kings, but they also are in this downward spiral farther and farther away from God. God warns them, cautions them, but they do not listen. They do not repent. They do not return to God's uh, authority over them. And so in 586 B.C., the Babylonians, who were the world power at that time, overrun this southern nation of Judah. They decimate the city of Jerusalem, break down the city walls. They pretty much destroy the temple. They ransack the palace and the temple, carrying away all of the valuables. And they also carry away into captivity the sort of cream of the crop among the Jews, the nobility, the leaders. One of those young men who is carried away in captivity to Babylon is this man, Daniel, whose story is told in the book that bears his name. Must have seemed like the end of the world to Daniel. Everything that he knew and cared about has been gone. He's been moved into a, a culture where he doesn't know the language or the customs and certainly doesn't know the religion that they practice there, a very pagan kind of religion. And yet, amazingly, Daniel is able to thrive in that situation. If you haven't yet had a chance to do so, I'd really encourage you to take, and it doesn't take very long, to read those first six chapters of the book of Daniel, which tell his story. It's pretty amazing. Daniel is able to thrive, and I believe that one of the reasons he was able to thrive in that tough situation is because Daniel was given by God a very important and practical wisdom. Now, I believe that wisdom starts with a right understanding about God. If we can believe the right things about God, that becomes the basis on which we have our perspective for life. Proverbs chapter 9 verse 10 says this, that the the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. If we can have the right understanding of who God is, if we can understand what that amazing being is like who created us, then it's a long, takes us a long way toward, uh, toward having a right view of life. So one of the things, one of the important things that Daniel believed about God was that God is sovereign. We don't use the word sovereign very often, do we, or sovereignty. To say that God is sovereign means that God is in control of everything. That God causes his will always to be done. That God not only knows the future, but he brings it about according to his will and his plan. Isaiah chapter 46 is one of the places where God describes his sovereignty. Here's what it says. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God. There is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand. And listen to this. And I will do all that I please. You see, it's not just that God knows the end from the beginning and can declare it, but that God causes to happen what is in his will. God will cause it to happen if he desires for it to happen because God is sovereign. He is totally in control. That means God is in control of the big things, the big things in life, 
the rise and fall of nations, you know, of people groups. But it also means, and for us, that God is in control of the small things in our lives. The day-to-day events that affect us are in the hand of God. There's a, a quotation from Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, where Matthew records something Jesus said that I think is one of the most um, beautiful, gracious things that Jesus ever said. This is, this is in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus is speaking to his followers, and he says, you know, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I think Jesus smiled as he said that. You know. Two sparrows, they're worth nothing. They're worth a penny. And yet they don't fall to the ground without your father's care. Can you doubt that God cares about you? You are worth many sparrows. God is in control of the big things. God is in control of the little things in our lives as well. So so how does Daniel hold on to that? I mean, it must surely have seemed to him like life was out of control. Everything that he'd known was gone. His city has been destroyed. Probably many of his family members have been killed. He's in chains. He's walking in this caravan day after day, leaving his home country behind and going to a life that he thinks is probably going to be no life at all. And yet, Daniel is able to believe that God is in control, that God is sovereign. How is he able to do that? Well, I think one of the things that helped him and that can also help us is the whole idea of prophecy. Did you ever ask yourself, why does God give prophecies? Why does God foretell the future sometimes? And I think one of the reasons is so that we will know that God is in control. You see, it's not just that God knows what's going to happen. God is saying in prophecy, I'm going to see to it that it happens. The prophet Isaiah once gave a prophecy. The king at that time was a king Hezekiah had been showing off all of his riches, the riches of his treasury and the temple treasury, flaunting them before some foreigners. And Isaiah says this to him. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And it happened. It happened just as God said it would happen, because God caused it to happen, because God is sovereign. I think that must have been a huge encouragement, that bit of wisdom that Daniel possessed, to know that what was happening to him was not outside of God's will. You and I use expressions like, whoa, I didn't see that coming. You know, haven't you said that a lot? Whoa, whoa, that caught me by surprise. Do you realize that God never says that? That that's never God's experience? God is never up in heaven and something happens and God goes, whoa, I never dreamed something like that would happen. Let's see, I better come up with a plan B, you know. God doesn't work with plan B's. God is never caught off guard, never caught by surprise, because he not only knows what's going to happen, he causes his will to be done because God is sovereign. Now, friends, 
There are an awful lot of the time when I don't like the idea that God is sovereign. Carla mentioned our friends in Haiti. I mean, imagine you're someone there who's just lost your home. I mean, you had virtually nothing to begin with. You've lost your home. You've lost your field, your crop, your job. Members of your family have died. Your nation has been decimated. And we say to you, well, that's okay. God is in control. You know? Is that a message you want to hear? My heart breaks today for the Eildert family. I mean, I married Alan Jane. They are dear friends. Should I be going down there and saying to Jane, well, God is sovereign. You know, his will will be done. That's hard, isn't it? That's hard. I don't always like the thought that God is in control, sovereignly in control. Let me suggest a couple things that help me in a situation like that. One is, I know the goodness of God. You know, we sing this song often, He is a good, good Father. When you sing those words, do you believe that? The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. I think once you have experienced the goodness of God, when you see that at the core of His being, He is a good, good Father, it sure makes it easier for us to trust in God when it seems like things are out of control. I want to believe, even in the midst of the storm, that I have a good, good Father. The second thing that helps me is to realize that always, at most, I'm seeing a little slice of reality. God is able to see the big picture. So you see someone, a man holding a knife and he's cutting another person. The little slice seems like it's a terrible tragedy that we'd want to stop and avoid. But if we were able to step back and see a little bigger perspective, we'd see that the man is a surgeon and he's performing a a surgery that's going to save the life of that man. And suddenly our perspective changes. As we were able to see life from God's perspective a little bit more, and we realize that's not a tragedy, that's not a bad thing at all, it's a good thing. If we were to step back even more and see a little more of reality as God sees it, we might see that that man whose life is going to be saved is going to influence thousands of people for good. We would not only say that it's not a tragedy that this man is cutting on him, it's a good, good thing because we have a good, good father. We've always got to realize that we're seeing just this little bit of reality. Do we trust God enough to believe that from his perspective, God, good, good Father, is still in control? And one other thing that I don't always like, but I think is true, and that is that God's priorities are often different than ours. So we had flooding around here. You know, some of you were probably affected by the floods We had several families here at Orchard who were impacted by that. Do you realize your perspective, your priority might be a finished basement? God's priority may not be that you have a finished basement. God's priority might be that you hold on to possessions very loosely. God's priority might be that you learn to trust Him in the midst of the storm. God's priority might be that you develop a generous and a giving heart. 
So that something that seems wrong, hard to us, may be because our priority is not aligned with God's. So I struggle with it sometimes. I confess that to you. I mean, you see me up here once in a while on Sunday morning and you say, wow, when I get to be in my 70s, I hope I have faith like Ed's. You know, I struggle sometimes to believe what I know to be true. And the sovereignty of God is one of, is one of those issues. God is in control. Daniel believed that. In Proverbs chapter 21, describes the control of God. In the Lord's hand is the king's heart. Um, the king's heart is a stream of water that channels toward all who please him. You know, God is control of the king of Babylon. You know, God controls it, moves and changes his mind. So when Daniel then is able to praise God because he has this wisdom, and he says in chapter 2, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. My prayer for myself and for you is that we have that kind of wisdom. I, real quickly, I want to talk about another area of wisdom that Daniel had. And that is that Daniel seemed wise enough to be able to understand that there are times when he needed to stand firm on principle and there were times when Daniel needed to compromise. <clears throat> compromise is kind of a dirty word in our society today, isn't it? You know, And yet Daniel was able sometimes to compromise. And as I was reading through the book of Daniel, I didn't always like that. I didn't like that he compromised in some ways. Daniel's taken to to Babylon. One of the first things they do is take away his name, Daniel. One of my favorite names means God is our judge. And they gave him a name that glorified not the one true God, that glorified their pagan God, God named Bel, B-E-L. Gave him a, a pagan name. Daniel seemed to be okay with that. They put him in a school where he's going to be learning the occult arts astrology and sorcery and fortune-telling and those kinds of things, things that God had forbidden. Daniel's in the midst of them. Did he say, you know, no, I'll die before I'll go to that school? No, he seems to be willing to compromise. And yet, he didn't believe those things. He didn't practice them. When Daniel, we see later on, needs wisdom, does he read tea leaves? Does he pull out a deck of tarot cards? Does he look to astrology? No. His faith is in God. And he prays to God for the wisdom and the knowledge that he needs. Daniel sometimes was willing to uh, to compromise. But there were other times when Daniel seemed wise enough to know that this is a place where I have to draw the line. And even if I have to die to do it, I will not be moved. And so when the command comes that they're to pray only to the king of Babylon, Daniel refuses. He remembers the the command of God. He will have no other gods. And he prays three times a day to the Lord God, even though he knows the consequence of that is going to be that he's going to be thrown into the den of hungry lions. Daniel says, here, I will not compromise. So I thought, all right, 
how can we be wise enough to know when it's okay to compromise and when we ought not to compromise? And I thought, well, maybe the key is that there's some things in the Bible that God is pretty clear about, pretty strict about, where God tells us we are to do something or we are not to do something, and we need to stand on that. The first thing that came to mind, like the Ten Commandments, you know, the Ten Biggies in the Old Testament. And the one that came to mind for some reason first, maybe the Holy Spirit, was the commandment about keeping the Sabbath day holy. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, God says. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is the Sabbath to the Lord your God, and in it you shall not do any work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your manservant, nor your maidservant, nor your ox, nor your ass, nor the stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Ah, command from God. And I used to think I knew what that meant. I I grew up in a Christian home. My parents had become Christians just shortly before I was born. They were uh, excited about their faith. I was in this young, growing church, great pastor. And, and I thought I understood a command like that because that's what I was taught. I remember when I was in grade school that there was a little grocery store down on the corner. I mean, we're not talking high V here. We're talking about a mom-and-pop place that sold bread and milk and and bubble gum, and probably not much else. And they made the decision that they were going to open on Sunday. Well, that was blasphemous. That was breaking of God's command. And if you can picture me doing it, and you probably can, which is unfortunate, I joined with people, here I am, fifth or sixth grade or something, picketing this little grocery store down on the corner. And I remember specifically our pastor telling us that we needed to boycott that store because they were violating the law of God. I mean, keeping the Sabbath day holy just seemed so clear back then. My home pastor would not even get the Sunday paper because it meant that somebody had to work to print that paper and to deliver it. I remember so clearly my parents, who didn't have a lot of money, found a sofa that they wanted to buy, and it was on sale on Sunday only. And I remember listening to them kind of wrestle through that. Could they buy that on Sunday? And they decided not to because they understood that would be violating the command of God to keep the Sabbath day holy. Now today, i got to confess, I sometimes make the quick run over to Walmart on a Sunday afternoon to pick up something that probably you know could wait till the next day, you know. Seems like as I get older, some things that seemed really black and white actually get a little more gray. And I'm not talking about my hair. I'm talking about, <laughs> talking about issues here. And there have been times when it seems to me like God was pushing me away from this sort of steadfast, you know, I'll die for this, into more of a position of compromise. I, I was... Um, I was Mr. Christian in college, and I was a jerk. You would not have liked me. I was the one who was known on campus, and this was at a church-related college. Um, I was known as the Christian, and I was known for three things. I was against smoking, against drinking. Oh, this is going to be four things. Against smoking, drinking, swearing, and premarital sex. Those were the things I was against. 
And I not only took a stand against them, but I know I was pretty condemning and judgmental of the people who practiced those things. Remember once some organization on campus was going to sponsor a debate on the issue of premarital sex, and they asked me if I would come and explain and defend the, the Christian position. And I was going to be out of town that time. I wasn't going to be able to do it. And they begged me to change my schedule because they said, we don't know who else we would ask. You know? <laughs> so people who knew me were pretty clear about what Christianity was. Christianity is not swearing, not smoking, not drinking, not having premarital sex, right? You know, and I was not about to compromise on those. Then one day I had this friend, and he was sort of my definition of what what somebody was who violated all of that. I mean, he was he was one of the guys who always came in, you know, on Saturday night and drunk and threw up in the hall and his language, words I'd never even heard before. And and we were friends. And one time he was going to be gone at on a meal time. He was leaving town. And he asked me if I would go across the street off campus to the tavern across the street and buy him a cheeseburger. <laughs> I'd, I'd never been in a tavern in my life. And God said, I want you to do it. It was just as clear to me as ringing a bell. You need to do it. So I went across the street and I bought him a cheeseburger. See, I want to be the kind of person whose faith is so strong that I will die for my faith. But I think God is also saying, but I want you also to be the kind of person who is willing to compromise when that's what I call you to do. So how do we differentiate that? And I'm really, this is kind of new territory for me, and I'm not sure I understand it real well, but a couple things that I think I'm coming to understand. One is that if I am compromising because taking a stand is going to be uncomfortable or or dangerous or I'm afraid of what might happen, if that's the reason I'm compromising then I probably ought not to be compromising. I ought to have the kind of faith that stands firm because I'm not afraid. And if I'm standing firm on something because I don't like the people with whom I'd be compromising, then maybe I ought not to be standing firm. Maybe I ought to see those folks the way God sees them. So I, I want to be the person who stands firm, but I also want to be the person who in love is willing to compromise. Now, folks, to wrap this up, we need to talk politics for just a minute, okay? <laughs> yeah. So we got a big election coming up. And the day after the election, half of us are going to be really upset and disappointed. Whichever way it goes, whichever half it is, you know, we're going to be disappointed. Are we going to be able to believe in a sovereign God? On the day after the election, are we going to be able to believe that God is in control? He says it right there in his word. He raises up kings and deposes them. He controls the mind of the king. He turns it whatever way he wants, like water in a water course. God is sovereign. God is in control. 
I want to believe, I do believe in a sovereign God. I want to be the kind of man who trusts him so much that I could stand with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel's three friends, before the fiery furnace and declare with them, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. I want to have that strong faith. And yet, and yet, I think about that mom and pop with that little grocery store on the corner of Arizona Avenue on 167th Street, and I think to myself, I wonder what they thought of Jesus. Hmm. I wonder what they thought of Jesus' followers. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes I think, boy, I wish we knew more. I wish you told us more. And then sometimes I struggle with the stuff you have told us. The Christian faith isn't always easy, but it's always true. So Daniel had wisdom, and it helped him to not just survive, but to thrive in the midst of some really difficult circumstances. Our prayer would be that we also would be able to thrive even when things don't go the way they want want them want them to even when we're in the midst of the storm as we just sang you know in the midst of the storm you are still God help us to love people the way that that you love them help us to bend over backwards to serve them and care for them and give us the kind of backbone of steel that we need at those times when we need to stand firm for you it's in the name of Jesus we pray amen